0: G'day listeners, a quick warning, this episode contains explicit content regarding the murder of a young woman. Policing Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Did police form the view it was a crime of passion?
1: They couldn't, they couldn't work out what it was. It wasn't a sexual assault. No, it it looked like whoever the killer was, he wanted to make sure she would never wake up. And hence he did uh, several things to make sure she was dead. Although the GMO thinks she might have been dead before he placed the paper down her throat.
0: Welcome to Policing Australia, I'm Jason Burns. The feature article in the June 1998 edition of the Australian Police Journal is titled The Jane Doe Murder Mystery. It was written by the now Deputy Editor of the APJ, Barry Fay. At the time of the murder, Barry was a detective sergeant and a fingerprint expert, and he played a supporting role in the police investigation. Rather than discuss in detail all aspects of the case, I talked to Barry about the crucial role of fingerprint analysis, as well as some additional aspects of interest. A few brief facts first. During the Christmas holidays in 1991, the decomposing body of a woman was found alongside a road in a light industrial area in southwest of Sydney. Despite the best efforts of police, the victim's identity remained a mystery for several months, during which time the media referred to her as Jane Doe. Eventually, the victim was identified as Vivian Ruiz. She had migrated to Australia as a child and, at the time of her death, worked as a prostitute. With Vivian's identity established, police were soon able to identify a suspect, her boyfriend, Richard White. By that time, White had fled the country. Fingerprint and other evidence soon firmly linked him to Vivian's death, and he was extradited from the United Kingdom. White was convicted of Vivian's murder in 1996. Hey Barry, it's great to see you in person for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, likewise. The Jane Doe article was one of the first you wrote after you retired and it's the case you were involved in.
1: Yes, I was, yes. What happened? Well, it was all a question of a rarity that they couldn't understand and were feeding the fingerprint information into the computer that couldn't identify the killer. Uh, The rare information was involved with a double set of uh, Sydney Morning Herald newspaper pages. Yep where the killer and his final act of uh, revenge or murder was to grab two sheets of this uh, large newspaper and roll it up and push it down the victim's throat to stop her final breaths.
0: How did the investigation start?
1: Around 91, uh, between Christmas and New Year, a body was found at Arncliffe, wrapped in plastic bags and that set off a chain of uh, investigations that followed. The victim was a young woman, but she couldn't be identified.
0: What did police and the general medical officer, or the GMO, find when they inspected the body?
1: Well, they saw a a decomposing female of a tender age, probably under 20 years of age, with terrific wounds to the head, where... uh, Dried blood had formed over several cuts and bruises. She had a bloated look about her mouth. It was after or before they discovered the newspaper pushed down her throat and the gruesome reminder that a ligature was used around her throat with a big dark mark encircling the throat.
0: Any bruising or other injuries to the body?
1: Yeah, there were bruises in in most places, but particularly uh, uh, around the face from a beating. And when examined at the morgue, they found like she'd been kicked several times in the buttocks and there were bruising in that area. She hadn't been sexually assaulted.
0: Kicked while she was still alive or after she died?
1: Well, they said while she was alive, she'd been kicked a few times. But uh, it was questionable about when they got that. It could have been shortly after, apparently. and can get bruising. I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that one. That's a good question. But, uh, yeah, he's probably kicking her as he was killing her. What happened at the post-mortem? The post-mortem revealed this large wad of newspaper down the throat as big as a man's fist and... It was during uh, subsequent uh, inquiries and chemical reactions the exhibit was opened up and fingerprints were found which looked like in her blood. She had had a terrible wound to the right side of her head, about two inches long. It seems that the killer had got her blood on his hands when he pushed this paper down her throat. But unbeknownst to us all the time... It wasn't a perfect fingerprint. It was an actual reversed mirror image of a real fingerprint because as he grabbed the paper, he wiped the blood off the top of the papillary ridges of the fingers of the left hand. And then as he shoved the newspaper down her throat, the ridges flattened out and the valleys or the cracks between the ridges which still contained blood, came forward onto the paper. The paper by this time is closing up over his hand, which preserved the evidence, and he pulled his hand away and left three fingerprints. One of them, the left middle finger, was more pronounced and higher than the other two.
0: I remember reading in the article you wrote the fingerprint was smudged
1: and there was more than one of them. It was fed into the computer as if it was a normal fingerprint. The computer couldn't identify it. He was on record. The killer was on record. At one stage, it looked like the most unusual happening would take place where the killer of a young woman would be identified before we knew knew who the woman was, the victim, that is. And so... Uh, That's what happened, really. The computer couldn't identify it and the woman couldn't be identified and we're left with this quandary of what to do next.
0: Can you describe fingerprinting technology back in the early 90s?
1: We were just coming into an era where we were able to get legible fingerprints off newspaper and other similar paper objects. Up to that point, we had chemicals that worked a little but were generally too difficult to get a fingerprint off. But at that stage, in 91, we had the chemical hydrant now refined by our American counterparts who uh, were able to get a good fingerprint off newspaper. Hence, those fingerprints were dipped in this chemical allowed to dry naturally and up came those three fingerprints on the paper. No other fingerprints were there, but just those three preserved by the way the paper folded around them.
0: Once you had the prints, how did you search the records?
1: Oh, it was just a matter of... uh, we used to trace them line for line in those days and then feed the trace into the computer. The computer worked in uh, in a way like the constellations in the night sky. It would draw up straight lines between minutiae or shall I say fingerprint identifiable uh, ridges. Actually it was the breaks in the ridges with what they called the constellation. So all fingerprints fed into the database were actually constellations of a fingerprint. And that's how it worked. The computers didn't identify anything. It still had to be the human brain to decipher what was going on, but it generated a list of likely candidates.
0: Was it just one team or unit that did all the searches?
1: Well, it was one team now for the whole of Australia. In 91, we'd changed the AFIS fingerprint computer we got from Japan to NAFIS, making it the National Fingerprint Computer. So technically a person who left his fingerprint on a crime scene in Western Australia could have it found and then emailed to the computer in Sydney and and be waiting for the criminal when he got home with the goods. So all the early leads came to nothing? Absolutely. Without any identifications of who the body is or who who belongs to the fingerprint found down her throat in what had looked like her blood. Unfortunately, DNA couldn't help us there. We didn't have anything much. In fact, I got visited by the... Uh, the leading detective was a fellow called Mick Plotecki. He came along and he said What else can you tell me? We got all that. I said well give me a hundred people and I can throw ninety out straight away because he's left handed. He nobody told me he was left handed, he said. I said, yes, well, she had a wound on the right side of her body, left-handed person. But the fingerprint is definitely the left-middle fingerprint and you'd use your strongest hand to push that paper into the last death stroke. Can
0: you explain how the team wasn't able to identify initially that the print was smudged?
1: The, The correct reference is a tonal reverse and it's a very, very rare phenomenon looked like it was uh, unprecedented in a murder trial like this in the world. So it wasn't recognised as such. The fingerprint lines were thinner because they weren't on top of the ridges. The blood was coming from between the ridges. It it has happened with normal fingerprints as well. For some reason, only a thin line appears because that's the wet spot where the blood lay. In this case, he's dried all the blood off the top of the ridges of the skin of the hand, uh, grabbing at the newspaper. So uh, it wasn't picked up by anybody. In fact, it's such a rare thing. You only see it once or twice a year as a, as a senior expert. I, I recognised it eventually before anybody else because when we finally had the killer's name, who was on record, they came to me and said, we just can't make it him. It's twisted slightly out of order. And it was that stage that I recognised it was back to front And I said to them, take it back to the dark room and reverse it and see what you say then. And they came back full of smiling faces and called up to say it was him. And there were over 10 points of identity on that fingerprint, although it was pretty smudged. At what stage
0: were you able to link the prints to the identity of the offender?
1: No, it was after they had had been broadcasting help, 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 all over the place, and newspapers, the media, everybody was trying to help them, even put a special display at the Royal Easter show where thousands looked at it, but they still couldn't get who it was. And one day he said, well, we'll put it in those ladies' magazines, which they did, and a new idea, I think it was, was published with pictures of her after we cleaned her face up, and she was recognized by a prostitute in the cross. And so they were hunting around the area where her body was found at Arncliffe, but really speaking they should have had it all around the cross. That's where the girl worked picking up a few dollars for that prostitution. Yes. And it was only after they came forward that Plateki was able to say, Well, did she have a boyfriend? They said yes, his name was so and so and that's how we started. We still hadn't identified her. Her fingerprints were very weak because she was decomposed when the body was found. But eventually, we got to places where she was staying at the cross, and through their uh, rent papers, etc., we found paper objects that gave us the girls, the missing girls' fingerprints. And from that, you were able
0: to confirm the victim's identity.
1: Yeah, and confirmed her identity and then from there it was fairly easy once you had who the victim was and who the boyfriend was. Although initially he rings up and says, look, we've got the boyfriend's prints here but it's not him. At, before they brought it to me, that's what happened.
0: And just to get the sequencing right, they identify the boyfriend but your team is initially unable to link his prints to the prints found in the newspaper.
1: They used the computer too which couldn't do it right from the word go. You had to see what we call the pictorial aspect of the fingerprint. The twists and turns of it were still there, although a mirror image.
0: After you were able to confirm the prints, how did police find the offender?
1: Well, they, <laughs> they were in a quandary. They couldn't find him. They realised he'd gone overseas to a relative's place in England, as a matter of fact, So it was a matter of getting Scotland Yard to make the arrests and extradite him back to Australia.
0: I understand the Met found some interesting evidence.
1: Yes, it was most interesting that they called us and they said, "Uh, look, while searching him and his property, which we're entitled to do, we've come across these notes he's made in prison and the notes were very incriminating telling us further what happened about the assault and when it happened, how he can try and get out of it, that sort of thing. He was talking to himself about not not to tell the police, etc. So it was very incriminating.
0: What other aspects of the case were curious at the time?
1: Well, uh, they were still curious about whether he was left-handed or right-handed, and when they brought him back... They set a bit of a trap. They found some of his property, pictures and uh, f- uh, photographs and things like that from his luggage and they took them back to him after a day or so and asked him to sign a receipt, which he uh, sat down and uh, picked up the borough in his left hand, started to write the receipt and he realised all the eyes were focusing on him for some unknown reason. And so he grabbed the receipt and tried to eat it, thinking that was it, but he'd already, once he'd picked up that biro and started writing, he'd told them what they wanted to know. There were several things like that, because it was a dragged-out affair, the entire case. And then he selected a trial by judge and not a jury, thinking he could explain it to one man better than 12, or thereabouts, but the judge was Peter Hidden, a very uh, astute judge, and he summed it up later by saying that all the little pieces of circumstantial evidence, for example, dog hairs were found on the girl's body, which were married up to an Alsatian. But it would marry up to any Alsatian, although his father had an Alsatian where the body may have been kept under the house. Uh, There were many little pieces of circumstantial evidence that the judge said were not compelling on their own, but they all added up. Mm. When it came to the fingerprint evidence, it was unanswerable. Do you remember what defence he tried to mount in court? Yes, well, one of them was they had a a barrister or solicitor saying that you can't prove it was blood on that piece of newspaper. It it was tested and tested as blood, but it would also test for any amino acid, such as if he was reading the newspaper and eating a pie with tomato sauce on it, it would show the same thing. So that got them all going. So in the courtroom, they called for the newspaper. And if he was eating a pie with tomato sauce on it, At the time he left the fingerprints, he had to be reading the newspaper upside down. So that was very helpful. But that was their excuse. And in those days, microchondrial DNA wasn't quite as strong as it is today. They could nearly now prove it was him, DNA-wise, that it was her DNA. But they couldn't in those days. And so... It was called circumstantial evidence, circumstantial evidence. And he summed it up, everything from the dog hairs to the fact that uh, her fingerprints and his were found on rental agreements and things like that that put them together. Other prostitutes had identified them together. It was just a terrible lot of circumstantial evidence, but when it came to the fingerprint evidence, the judge agreed that that's how it was left, by that final thrust with his left hand pushing it down a throat and the paper closed over it, preserving the evidence.
0: He denied killing Vivian. Do we know why he did it?
1: Part of the trial was centred around his use of drugs. He had uh, smoked marijuana, so had she... They'd used other drugs and so it looked like it was a mad drug uh, fight between the two of them and they often had physical fights where she'd snack him back. But on this occasion it looks like he's hit her with a small coke or alcoholic bottle of some sort and caused her to bleed on the right side a two-inch scar there. Uh, then he's... Just desperate to kill her. Hence he uh, did what he did with the newspaper, although the GMO during the post-mortem said, you know, by that big dark ligature mark on her neck, she was already dying or dead when he started pushing the paper down her throat. So that crucial evidence he left just to make sure he got convicted.
0: Why did it occur at Arncliffe?
1: Oh, yes, why did it... It was suitable to his route to King's Cross from his parents' home at Bexley, not far away, and there were thoughts that he'd had his van uh, repaired in that area by mechanics and so he knew it was pretty isolated uh, commercial area of the city and uh, hence it looks like he selected that. It was so isolated he could drag her out of the back of the van and dump her on the footpath and it would still take many hours for her to be found.
0: Do we know where the murder actually occurred?
1: It was suggested that he had to have killed her at a unit, his unit in the city, or at the Hampton Court Hotel where she stayed on one or two nights. But they weren't sure. There was no real crime scene. But somewhere between uh, uh, just before Christmas when she was supposed to go to his parents' house, uh, she was struck down and killed and looks like he's put her in the van and taken her to his parents' house where they found sand pouring out of her clothing at post-mortem and that sand appeared to match the sand from the underneath the house where the dog hairs apparently were adhered to her body.
0: Was it a lot of sand?
1: Apparently it poured out of her shorts like a cupful, or half a cupful, and enough to to go close. Sand identification is not so easily, but if it has certain minerals and things in it, it can be isolated.
0: Barry, after all these years, what stands out to you about the case?
1: Yeah, it was the breakthrough, really, of the fingerprint the whole fingerprint evidence centred on the, the most, I suppose, the, uh, it, when it was isolated, that's what caused his whole demise. And he didn't have to push it down the throat anyway. No, it was the frustration of the detectives and no one could identify her or him. And uh, he was on record. That was probably the biggest breakthrough for our point of view.
0: What about the sentencing?
1: From what I recall, he got about 12 years, which was reduced to nine years without parole. And that was a pretty easy thing considering a pretty easy sentence. But uh, no, the judge sentenced him, Judge Peter Hidden was his name, and everything went over accordingly and he'd be out now, of course, walking the streets. But the centrepiece of evidence was the fingerprints on the newspaper, which makes the police case unanswerable.
0: That was APJ Deputy Editor Barry Fay, discussing the so-called Jane Doe murder case. Barry's full account of the investigation into the horrible crime, including many unique aspects not canvassed in this discussion, can be read at our website, apjl.com.au. Until next time, take care.